0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: Just a heads up, this episode contains explicit language and discussion of sex and sex work. It may not be appropriate for young ears. All right, on to the show. Hey, everyone. You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker.
0: And I'm Gene Demby.
1: Now, Gene. Uh,
0: hmm
1: I want to talk to you today about a show that I'm absolutely obsessed with. Oh, you to stay with me now. Uh, Mercedes! Uh. Have you ever watched P-Valley?
0: You know... Parker, it has been on my list for a long time, but I actually have not gotten a chance to see it yet.
1: Oh my gosh, you've just, you've got to, you've got to.
0: So you obviously have feelings. I want i want to hear all of it. Just lay it all on me.
1: All right, so listen, it's steamy and saucy and introspective. It contains multitudes. Okay. So basically, P-Valley is this dreamy, southern gothic, black woman. soap of a show that... Okay. <laughs> ...that focuses on the lives of strippers in this fictitious town called Chuckalisa, Mississippi. The strippers work at a club called The Pink. That's P-Y-N-K. First up, we got
2: blue cinnamon.
1: Okay. And usually the way that strippers are portrayed on TV is this one-dimensional world-weary single mom. Mm -hmm.
0: Or the stripper with the heart of
1: gold. Exactly, but like that's not P-Valley. In fact, you can tell from the first bars of the opening theme song that this is not your mama's stripper show. I, I don't
0: think my mom has a stripper show.
1: But, as I said, the show isn't just steamy. You've got these amazing characters, there's The always glamorous Uncle Clifford, who is the owner of the paint.
0: Rule number (laughs) 45.22. Leave your baby daddy drama at home.
1: There's Mercedes, who is the hit strong veteran stripper who keeps trying to retire, but she can't.
0: Just when she thought she was out, they keep pulling her back in. Exactly.
2: Exactly. I'm just saying, my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. And what would all I've been doing?
1: And then there's Keyshawn, who is this dreamer struggling to become a star and dealing with her abusive husband.
2: Hey, what did he say? <laughs> he was just hollering and screaming about wearing a mask.
1: Oh, you got another complaints before? And the second season of the show, which is wrapping up this month, follows them all as they try to save the pink from being sold.
0: Hmm. So I've seen a lot of discourse around Pea valley but I haven't obviously seen the show itself. I've seen a lot of people tweeting about, you know, the way it portrays black women and sex work. I've seen people arguing about whether the accents are accurate, right? Because it's set in Mississippi. I've seen people talking about how beautifully shot it is. And all the people I know in real life who really rock with this show um, are southern black women. I guess you are a connoisseur, right?
1: Yeah, because we love mess.
0: (laughs) Everybody loves mess, though.
1: But we love mess.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair enough.
1: No, okay. P-Valley first premiered in the summer of 2020 and has gained such a strong following since. The first episode of the second season had more than 4.5 million viewers across platforms. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to the mastermind behind this hit show, Katori Hall. And by the way, Jean, Katori Hall is the creator of Pea Valley, which is impressive enough on its own, but she's an award-winning playwright. She won the Pulitzer Prize for drama for her 2021 play, The Hot King. Okay. And Pea Valley started out as a play as well, and it was inspired by her childhood
2: growing up in Memphis, Tennessee. And I actually grew up, like a lot of folks, I will say, uh, going to strip clubs. Started probably too young, uh, but, (laughs) you know, when you would go into a club, you would see just this amazing spectacle. I think Southern strip clubs specifically, there tends to be more of a show. Um, it's, It's not just about stripping and taking off your clothes, taking off your top. It's really about these athletic sets that you get to see and, and throw money at the women, right? And so it was just part of my upbringing in terms of, you know, you know, Southern culture and seeing that and kind of being a participatory observer of the culture. Um, So fast forward, I had moved up to New York, you know, just, Attending school, living my young adult, fabulous New York City life. And I actually started taking pole dancing classes at Crunch Gym, I remember. And in that moment, I realized how. How'd that go? It, I was just about to say, I almost threw up actually on my first day <laughs> because I was on the pole and then I just kept <laughs> on spinning around and around and around. And then I was like, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. And I like had to run to the bathroom. So in that moment, you know, it kind of crystallized for me how how hard what these women do is and um i figured out you know i should probably make a a a story out of this i was you know just inspired by um the kind of super shironess um of the women that i had you know grown up, seeing on the pole, and then trying to do it myself. So I embarked on this six-year-long journey from that point of doing research, um, I sat across from over forty women over that time. I went to over forty strip clubs. Respect. Oh yeah, I I did that journalism thing. Like really, really, did a huge deep dive. Yo, I did everything but audition. I was like, man, I should have. I should have went up on that stage. I should have, you know, because <laughs> I had done the the class, but I should have just gone ahead and went all the way. Um, but I kind of, you know, <laughs> that's the thing. It takes a lot of bravery, I think, to do that. And I just wasn't as brave. The play came out of that, all of that. Mm-hmm. And I learned very quickly in 2015, which is when the play Pussy Valley was produced, that it it should have been a TV show because there was just so much going on and like so many interesting characters and the dynamics just begged for a deeper exploration that could go on for multiple seasons. And so I decided to go out to LA and pitch it. And I remember like everybody was like clutching their pearls, (laughs) you know, at my pitch. (laughs) Because I just think they were like, we are... We, this is titillating. This is interesting, but there's just like no way in hell that we're gonna do a show about strip clubs. You know, black women downtown. You know, stripping. Um, just because there's, it was like a cultural landmine. You know, there's this history of the hypersexualization of black women, and so I just think that people are like very hesitant to take that on. Um, but when I sat down with stars. And I explained to them that this was not, you know, this glamorization of strip club culture. It was actually a humanization project that I was embarking on. They really, really understood where I was coming from. And they gave me that shot. They were the only place that said yes. Hmm. But as my mama always said, all you need is one yes, girl. And you just gone through the <laughs> door. <dough. laughs> what you gonna do with your yes? And so this is my yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's
1: to that's be on a bumper sticker. What are you going to do with your yes?
2: hmm Mm-hmm.
1: For me, the show, just, like, every episode feels like a quiet revolution.
2: Ooh, I love that. I love that.
1: Yeah, because, like, a, a lot of that's through the show's black female agency and it's queer agency where you know strippers are in control of their bodies which is such an historical contrast to how strippers and their families are typically portrayed in the media i mean the the biggest episode this season that well the one that's been talked about a lot is like the story um of one of the strippers mercedes helping her 14 year old daughter grapple with the decision of whether or not to get an abortion In the scene we're about to hear, Mercedes and her daughter, Terica, are talking about the fact that Mercedes actually got pregnant with Terica as a teenager and had questioned at the time whether or not to get an abortion herself. You did want an abortion?
2: I'd be lying if I say I never considered. But that's all I ever did was consider, because Patrice ain't giving me no choice. She made me hell you. And you know what? (laughs) I'm thankful every day Because <laughs> sometimes God uses the devil to give you your blessing.
0: All I ever wanted was for you to have choices, Derek. and to make them for yourself.
1: It's a very emotional, and very complex scene. And I'm wondering why that issue, the issue of abortion, is something you wanted
2: to tackle in the show. I think it's because it is so emblematic of just the Black female experience. And I just think it's so important to be honest about everything that we're going through. You know, it's not a lot of us who live at the intersection of race, class and gender. And to have that intersectional identity, it's it's it. We just don't see the complexity of that often um, in media. And so... I always say we're trying to put vitamins in the Kool-Aid. Like we want to talk about real stuff that everyone is going through, through this very specific lens so that it can feel and be universal. I mean, I love when we drop an episode and you see the comments on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram and people are kind of rising up and saying, oh my God, that's me, Mercedes is me. Terica is me. Big Teak is me. We're dealing with issues that, you know, a lot of people don't even want to talk about in their own families. Like, it's not only abortion. We're talking about um, mental health. We're talking about suicide. And, you know, from the outside, it can be like, oh, my God, that's a lot to take on (laughs) for a TV show. But I think when you, like I said... You're writing about characters that have like a like this, you know, they have um, multiple identities that they're dealing with. You know, it it just it just makes sense that um, what they're going through would resonate with so many different types of people. So we we take on um, a lot, and I feel as though as a black writer, as a black female writer, it's kind of my responsibility, right? I have this platform. Millions of people are watching this show. So I think that's one of the main reasons as to why we, we tell the stories that we do. We tell the kind of deep and dark stories that we do, um, which, you know, some people have been a little, I would say, they're uncomfortable. They've been made to feel very uncomfortable. But, you know, it's sometimes it's really hard to look in the mirror. Sometimes it's really hard to look at your reflection, especially when you don't like what you see. Um, but that's the power, I think, in in this particular medium of TV where we are going to um, just, just be honest, be true. We use, as I say, fiction in order to tell the truth. And you
1: say, you just said this great thing about putting the vitamin C in the Kool-Aid. Like, how do you write about these very complex and maybe contentious topics without having the stamp of issue show or without
2: being preachy? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's all very character-based. It could come off very easily, I think, in the wrong hands as, like you said, very preachy, heavy-handed, like even political. But for us— we've created these characters that feel so real and we've created characters that people like really want to hang out with like everybody and their mama want an uncle clifford in their life (laughs) everybody want a roulette as their friend right so by tackling these issues and these stories through these characters that you know just feel like your home girl or your home boy you know you just I think in a weird way, you're able to take in uh, the vitamins a little bit more.
1: Yeah. And I mean, two of the characters and their storylines that I find particularly interesting is the relationship between Uncle Clifford and Lil Murda.
2: Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could tell us about those characters. So, Uncle Clifford is the owner of the pink. Um, she has been <laughs> wrestling with trying to, you know, keep the pink, you know, in her hands and, and keep the the pink, you know, fiscally healthy. She is non-binary, but she goes by, she has a she and her, she uses she and her pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in season one, you know, she began to cultivate this in-the-closet relationship with uh, this up-and-coming trapper rapper named lamurta And initially, it felt like just this kind of lusty sexual connection, but over time, it has grown to be something deeper. I think lamurta in that he is, you know, so masculine, so sexy, like has all this swag and has not been... He's honest with himself about, I think, his identity, but I think that he's well aware that, you know, as a rapper, as a rapper who does, you know, gangster rap, if he came out, he knows that he wouldn't be, I would say, embraced. Mm -hmm. And so last season, um, LaMurda, you know, in an attempt to kind of flex in front of this, music executive, he basically dismisses Uncle Clifford, which, you know, um, hurts her to her core and kind of brings into sharp relief this thing of can, you know, these two, you know, human beings, one who has a more feminine Mm -hmm. uh, uh, gender performance and this other one who has a more masculine uh, gender performance, can these two kind of live loudly in the light in a relationship? And so that has been one of the major struggles um, over the course of these past Two seasons for these two particular characters. What I have found so interesting, and I joke about this all all the time. I'm like, did I just create, you know, uh, a stripper show so that I could hopefully write one of the best love stories between two black queer people of all time? Because <laughs> it's so interesting. That people are so invested in this relationship, the the will they or won't they make I'm it? I'm here for it. um everyone, even people who you know are low key homophobic or high key homophobic. <laughs> they they still because Lil' Murder is so tender because <laughs> there's a he's a tenderoni. He absolutely is a lover, and he's what? also a fighter.
0: How come you let me back inside? Cause you needed me, and I needed you.
1: All right. After the break, we're talking about some other lovers and fighters, the folks on social media who cannot stop
2: arguing over P-Valley. We just did not know how much uh, there would be an uproar to the point where there was a cancel P-Valley hashtag.
0: Stay with us, y'all.
2: Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing. But it doesn't mean that we... Condone her actions.
1: This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your
2: mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change
1: the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Parker. Gene. Code Switch. Okay, well, Jean, you may have seen this, but earlier this year, there was a P-Valley social media uproar that had me feeling some type of way. Basically, there was an episode of the show that featured two scenes that people had very different reactions to. One was a sex scene between two black women, and the other was between two black men. And when I saw the discussions happening on Twitter after the episode came out, there seemed to be such a difference in reaction between those two scenes. Now, a lot of the people I saw talking were totally fine with the scene between the two women, but seemed utterly freaked out by the scene between the men. So I asked Katori what she made of that moment and how she
2: decided whether or not to respond. That moment in particular, I must say, I was really surprised. I mean, by design, we wanted to have those two sex scenes in the same episode, right? We had an inkling that people would be a little bit like, oh, but we just did not know how much uh, there would be an uproar to the point where there was a cancel P-Valley hashtag that was created. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I actually got sick with COVID that week. So- I was like, is this, like, God trying to help me or hurt me both? I don't know. (laughs) But so I actually did not respond to that particular hubbub. Um, But my amazing co-EP, Patrick Ian Polk, um, queer icon who created Noah's Ark, you know, he stepped into uh, the fray for me. uh, And he has had a history of, you know, there being so much um, just homophobia, and that's been thrown at his work, and to to see, you know, what you know, we thought was a very kind of beautiful sex scene, be, you know, seen as or touted as some kind of emasculation project, you know, for black men. Um, he was just very, very frustrated by that and and so, you know, um, he basically was like, You know, the gay ain't going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> this may not be for you like and and it's true. like I said before, the gayness, queerness is so important to um all of my work because I want to show all black people in my work. I'm not just focused on one type of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, obviously tweets were going viral that week. Um, it, and, you know, like I said, that the cancel P-Valley hashtag was was popping for a minute, child, because they were just up in arms. And I think it has a lot to do with this. We are so comfortable with a, especially when it comes to the black male body, you know, for that queerness to look and feel soft and feminine. But when it comes to a more masculine and dare I say even Mm hyper-masculine visual articulation of um, gay black male identity, it feels like a threat. It... It it brings up these icky feelings of oh, are there men on the down low trying to, you know, dupe black women? When in all actuality, it's just that there are some men who are same-gender-loving men who are probably uncomfortable with being honest with other people as to who they love or, or who they like because of. You know the reaction that we got because of the homophobia, and so they're not as expressive, like like yeah, this this is my this is my dude, you know, um, <laughs> and that is why I think it, we almost, in a weird way, kind of proved our the point of the entire story. Mm. This is the reason why Big Teak and La Murder aren't like you know walking down the streets holding hands, even though they may want to. It's because they know that the world is not interested in that particular articulation of Black gay male identity. Um, So, you know, it's that particular episode, that scene specifically really, really, you know, blew people's minds and disgusted some people. And I always say it's kind of like a Rorschach test because your reaction to the scene kind of said more about you than anything else. Um, And, you know... It'll continue over the course of the season and has continued over the course of the season. Um, but what I have found super interesting is the same people who are like, "I ain't gonna watch P Valley no more. I ain't gonna watch it. I ain't gonna watch it." They be watching. <laughs> they watch every episode. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and I think that's what a good TV show does. It like it makes you uncomfortable, and you like, "Oh my god, I'm never gonna watch this show again." Oh, f this show, f this show. And then all of a sudden, you know, you at the season finale. Thinking that you was only gonna watch, you know, you weren't gonna watch another episode, but you've, you know, ended up watching the ten, the whole ten.
1: Your exploration of of black queerness in the South specifically is a topic that you also dive into in your play The Hot Wing King, mm-hmm, yeah. which also featured the actor Nico Anand. Yes. Who plays Uncle Clifford on P Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Like, why
2: is that a theme that feels important to keep coming back to? Do you feel... Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I think that's such a great question. I've been thinking about this a lot, too, because it's like, Katori, you're not a gay black man. Like, why do you keep on (laughs) writing (laughs) these stories that are not necessarily your experience? And real talk, I just think that's what a, a damn good writer does. Like, I think it it's imperative that we write outside of our experience. I think it is healing. I think it is what makes you a a dope artist. The fact that I can put myself in the shoes of another person and through my imagination, you know, walk their walk. Um, I also, you know, I do continue to do a lot of research. I know that I, I don't know everything about uh, what it feels like, what it is like to be um, black and queer in the South. And so I ask questions. I I do a hell of a lot of research, whether it's, you know, um, doing interviews with people, which is definitely what I did with the Hot Wing, hot wing King. Um, I sat down with my brother and his partner, uh, um, and that's uh, who the play is. Based on um, and I I really wanted to hear how it was as these two black men who um, just broke through <laughs> and decided that they were going to be together like just so that people know like the Hot Wing King is about um, two, two black gay men in Memphis Tennessee. And one of them has recently just kind of come out of the closet, is in the midst of a divorce, has sons, like has lived that life, like a hetero life, and has decided that he's going to be true to himself. And over the weekend, of a, a as they pre- prepare for a hot wing contest, um, they kind of really, you know, um, put ten toes down in terms of their relationship and, and how they're going to move forward um, to, together as a couple. And so the fact that my brother and his partner had lived that life um, and um, I wanted to kind of like dedicate this show to their love and to their resilience. And so, um, yes, it it requires a lot of imagination on my part, but I always, always bake in the truth, especially when it's not exactly my own life experience.
1: How do you feel when people get called out for writing about communities that other than their own, or
2: or for doing it badly, you know. For me, I, I have run into some, I would say, tricky interpretations <laughs> of of other communities. You know, from people who are outside of that community, um, like when a white person is writing about a a, a, a the, the black community in any way. Um, I think what can be your saving grace and what has been my saving grace is that I have surrounded myself with people who are from that community in terms of the writers room and the fact that when I come to the table I I come with questions more so than answers cuz I know that that's not my lived experience.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like who is in the writers room? Like what kind of perspectives do you rely on to help tell the stories that are very uh, of these very different Characters in a way that feels meaningful or satisfying, and like they're, the, the dreaded
2: word is like authentic. But like, what? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I think that's such a great question. You know, we are, I would say, it's ha- its more than half made of women, uh, more than half queer, people who identify as being queer. Uh, we always have a dancer or two at the table yes. um, for the past two seasons, absolutely. Um, we've had people who have participated in different lanes of sex work, not just stripping. Mm-hmm. I also just want people who have different approaches to story. You know, I must say I'm very character centric. And so I try to uh, bring into the fold people who think more about plot or people who think more about theme or people who think in symbols, you know, it's just a really, you know, diverse um beautiful, beautiful, grounded and honest, brutally honest room. And I'm very, very blessed that um, I have been able to find, as I call them, my hitters. Yeah. Do you think Pea
1: Valley is a fairy tale? Like there's some magical realism throughout the season, whether it's, you know, talking to ghosts mm-hmm, or a fear of heights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in one episode, I think someone says like a fairy tale is a horror story
2: with a happy ending. No, it's not a fairy tale at all. And it's it, it is so grounded in um, reality. This
0: ain't no fairy tale. This the real world. And in the real world, all of us got the power to rewrite our own destinies. Handsome princes can become fire-breathing dragons. Trusty sidekicks can become angels of death. And even damsels can become their own damn saviors.
2: I do think some people get their fairy tale, but as in life, um, just like in a TV show because you get to do it over and over again, you know, there's some days that feel better than than others for our characters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think that P Valley will ever participate in um a kind of like complete happy ending <laughs> for any of our characters. Um, and it's interesting because I know that a lot of our audience members, they 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 need that. Um, But I just think that to speak honestly, about what is happening today, especially with where the show is set. We just have to be kind of way more honest and real. But I do think that some people can get their fairy tales. I think the characters that get that mm-hmm. um, have to grind for for that fairy tale. I do think that the um, despite all the darkness, there is light in Chuckalisa, but it's just not every day. <laughs>
1: Once again, that was Katori Hall. She's the creator of the show P Valley, which is just wrapping up its second season on Stars.
0: Alright, Parker, I'm convinced. I'm moving this up my queue, my to watch queue. I'm gonna start watching the show this week. On your suggestion Success. after this conversation.
1: Because you know, I'm gonna need someone to watch season three with me.
0: I got you, I got you.
1: And that's our show. We wanna hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. You can follow us on IG and Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. Subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash codeswitchnewsletter.
0: This episode was produced by Alyssa Jong Perry and edited by Leah Donella and Dahlia Mortada. And a shout out to the rest of the Codeswitch massive Karen Grisby-Bates, Christina Kala, Kumar Devarajan, Jess Kung, Summer Tomad, Deepa Motasham, and Steve Drummond.
1: I'm B.A. Parker.
0: And I'm Gene Demby. Be zero.
1: Hydrate. Hey there. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate you and thank you for being a subscriber. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. And it also helps support our show. So if you love our work, Please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash code switch. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Ray about those moments where our lives
2: could have gone another direction.
0: Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all.
2: At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Ray tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card Podcast from NPR